Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. With his 75,000 Twitter followers and his many television appearances and newspaper columns, Soli Özel is one of Turkey's best-known political commentators. But Özel, who is currently a fellow at Yale Law School, is more than just an expert on Turkish domestic politics. So when we talked last week, I began by asking him whether he believed that democracy around the world was in crisis. So, so far in this show, I often mention Turkey as an example of a country where democracy is in trouble, in crisis, may not even exist anymore. But we've never really addressed the issue. One of the world's leading authorities on Turkish politics is an old friend of mine, a guy actually I went to grad school with many years ago, Soli Özel. He's currently a fellow at Yale Law School. He's, as I said, one of the world's leading authorities on Turkish politics. So, Soli, welcome to Keen on Democracy. Hi, Andrew. Good to be with you on this show. So, Soli, before we get to Turkey, I know you're also a very keen observer of politics globally. Is democracy broadly, in global terms, is it in crisis in your view? It certainly looks that way and in a complicated fashion as well, in the sense that nobody is really coming out straight and saying we should not hold elections. But of course, our understanding of democracy, particularly after the Second World War, was liberal democracy, that is rule of law. Yes, majority rules, but minority rights are protected that there should be a balance of power between different branches of government, and rule of law is extraordinarily important. And I guess, especially in the last 30 years or so, particularly after the Cold War was over, the economic dimension of the liberal part of that definition has taken over almost everything else. And one of the things that make a democracy functional, or at least function smoothly, which is by and large, equality among citizens and the fact that the citizens should feel cared for by their rulers, by those who govern the country, that has been shaken, particularly in developed countries where a bargain at the end of the Second World War that the economy should actually work for a much larger segment of the population than was hitherto the case, and that the state also should take responsibilities in terms of public services and what have you. But this 
kind of neoliberal view, which suggests that because of the complete dominance of the market, we've undermined democracy. It doesn't always work, does it? Because in countries like Poland and Hungary, the economy is actually doing pretty well in, in spite of their dissent, if that's the right word, into a kind of illiberal democracy. That is definitely a dimension of it. And the second dimension, which I don't think is totally unrelated to the economic one, is, of course, the cultural resentment or ressentiment that had emerged because of the growing gap between the especially urban educated elites and the rest of society who feel themselves not only just left behind, but also that they have been condescended upon by the liberal elites, both economic and cultural elites. And it is not a coincidence, I think, that uh, most of the right-wing movements in developed countries happen to come from areas where there used to be good economic activity and there isn't now, and it is then related to this fundamental clash between prospering areas and not prospering areas, rural versus urban, and the ideology, ideologically, in a way, it's the clash between cosmopolitans or more cosmopolitan-oriented segments of the population and more nativist ones. And the nativism is precisely what the rising populist movements, which have an authoritarian bent, actually work with. Last week, Solly, on the show, we had Claire Fox. I don't know if you know her. She's a London-based political pundit and, and quite sympathetic, actually, to Brexit. She argues that something like Brexit actually is a manifestation of democracy working. What do you make of that? Yeah, okay. That is a big debate in the literature concerning populism. And obviously, populism, to the extent that it expresses the discontent of a wide segment of the population is their way of expressing or using their democratic rights and expressing their displeasure and their protest about the way things are set up. When you go further down the road in trying to analyze such things, the important thing is when the populists talk about we, instead of talking about a we that encompasses the entire society with, of course, all the conflicts that may exist in that in society, they only think that those who vote for them, who support them, are the constitutive element of the nation or of society, and the others really are not. In that sense, not only do they not have much room for the liberal attributes of democracy, but it is questionable that they themselves are democratic in the sense of understanding and accepting the plurality of society. And we've seen that in Turkey as well. I mean, our president for a long time has used uh, dichotomous language, basically saying we and them, okay? And there's always a them that are not necessarily, and that them may depend on the circumstance under which he speaks. They don't belong to the nation or they don't define the nation. We see that now even more spectacularly in Trump. I mean, for Trump, the only legitimate part of society is his electorate. The rest are basically out to get him, and that actually renders them automatically illegitimate. Orban, you mentioned Orban. Orban does the same thing as does Kaczynski and what goes on in Poland. And by the way, I mean, in Poland and Hungary, I think we have to, I suppose we have to distinguish between the two. I mean, Hungary lost about an eighth of its population, whether or not its economy is functioning well, and the weight of the rural areas is high. And those who would actually defend a more rule-based order are actually outside the country. 
I mean, Austria, where populist uh, party is a right-wing, far-right nationalist party is in a coalition partner, obviously is an extraordinarily prosperous country. So we cannot really explain the rise of such sentiment by economic circumstances. So, Sola, you sort of describe this descent into what we might call echo chamber politics. Can we blame all this on Facebook and Twitter and Google? Is this driven by the internet, this descent into echo chamber politics? I think it's exacerbated by the, not just the existence, obviously, but the way we choose to use the uh, social media. Remember that, the, and of course, this is your expertise, um, Social media was supposed to render the world a global village. Instead, it actually put uh, more and more distance between different groups. And it's much more comfortable, I suppose, to live in an echo chamber and actually be reassured of the rightness of your positions. By the way, in the European case, obviously, the presence of immigrants and the fact that in an understanding, I mean, in a very liberal approach to immigration problem, not enough care was taken to either explain or to generate a consent from the rest of society for the arrival of immigrants. That absence actually also led to the use of immigrants and then refugees, potential refugees or actual refugees, as the concrete manifestation of a system that was actually not working for the common man, quote-unquote. So, the immigrants have become the uh, symbol, if you will, of the discontent that exists in many developed societies. And that's why I also distinguish between rising populisms in developing countries versus those in developed countries, in the sense that they both emanate from middle classes. But in one case, it's the um, middle class on the losing end of things, or one that feels uh, threatened, and on the other, in developing countries, it's really the middle classes that are rising and that are far more nativist-oriented than their former secular establishments. Are you placing Turkey in the developed or the developing world, or is it the country that sits between the two? The thing is, I mean, to our West, there are also underdeveloped countries, whether or not they're members of the European Union does not change the fact that they are underdeveloped as well. But of course, Turkey is, uh, I consider Turkey as a developing country. And obviously, the uh, current ruling party of Turkey represented and also created a rising middle class, particularly in provincial cities. And those guys have culturally had uh, views that were not necessarily the views of the founding generation of the republic, their relation to religion, their relation to the West, their value system, their principles were actually very different, as I said, more nativist oriented, and the space was open politically to them after sociological developments in the country. I mean, 40 years ago, about 62% of Turkish population lived in rural areas. Today, about 15% do. And so there's been incredible migration from villages to cities and then from provincial cities to major cities mostly located in the coastal provinces of Turkey where most of the Turkish modern Turkish economy actually takes. How extensive is internet penetration in Turkey? Is it 80, 90 percent? Well it's pretty high. I think it's in the 70s, maybe even 80s. So give us a snapshot, Sali. Not everyone here will be obviously as familiar as you with 
the politics of Turkey. Give us a, a brief snapshot of where we're at in Turkish politics. Who's running the country and the brief history of this? Turkey has recently changed its governing system from a parliamentary one to a presidential one. And those of us who were not very happy with that transition argued that the uh, proposed system and now the actual system did not have uh, checks and balances, separation of powers, and that therefore it was leading to an incredible uh, monopolization of power in the hands of not just the presidency, but the president himself. So the ruling party, because we still have a parliament, is the Justice and Development Party. It emanates from Turkey's uh, Islamist movement. It is the uh, successor to a number of Islamist parties that were first created in 1970, and then a lot of them were closed down and then reopened. And in 2002, the new generation of Islamists have come to power promising the country, promising the electorate that they would deepen Turkish democratization by first demilitarizing Turkish politics. And they came to power, uh, sorry to interrupt you, they came to power legitimately, at least in democratic. They were voted in. Yeah, they came to power in 2002 after the entire Turkish system had collapsed following a major economic crisis in 2001, which is very similar to the 2008 crisis in developed countries in the West. And they also promised the country as the insurance policy, if you will, that they would pursue Turkey's uh, European Union membership with very seriously. And indeed, they did that. And they have broken a lot of taboos, but also by using the necessary reforms that the EU demanded for Turkey to first become a candidate and then to actually proceed with negotiations, which are currently in deep coma, they also changed the Turkish system and they managed to weaken the political grip of the military, which had been pretty high for quite some time in Turkish politics. Once that was done, and once the demilitarization process was uh, by and large over, and uh, in their third running for elections, they received 50% of the vote, things began to change, and uh, the trend towards a more authoritarian understanding of our politics had become uh, better established. And in fact, some of the uh, higher-ups in the ruling party said in 2012, I think, that until then they did cooperate with liberals. And this was, if you will, to level the field, uh, to move away from the old system. And that the stage now we were at was the construction stage and that they would do on their own with their own belief systems and they did not need their liberal and other uh, collaborators, if you will. Since then, we have moved in a direction whereby essential elements of the liberal aspects of Turkish democracy were removed. However, we just recently had about three weeks ago municipal elections. What the municipal elections have shown was that the country is divided almost equally 50-50. On the one hand, the ruling AKP with its coalition partner associates the MHP, the ultra-nationalist party in Turkey, basically hold 50% of the vote. And the liberals, seculars, and the Kurdish nationalist party, I would say, are the other 50%. And by the way, that more disparate coalition that is not very open societally has managed to take away from the ruling AKP their most important assets. And that is 
the mayoralties of Istanbul and Ankara. And uh, Mr. Erdogan's rise had begun when he was elected in 1994, exactly quarter of a century ago, the mayor of Istanbul. And that's what started his ascent as a national politician. Right. So democracy is working then in Turkey. These guys who have been in power for 20 years are now getting voted out. Is that one interpretation? We can say much more comfortably what I would say is that our electoral system, despite the fact that the campaigns were extremely unfair, unjust, not level and all that, actually worked. At least in these local elections, they worked. And immense potential power has passed into the hands of the opposition. Istanbul by itself makes up uh, 31% of Turkish GDP. The major cities that the um, opposition won uh, and took away from either AKP or MHP's coalition partner represent over 62% of the Turkish economy. These are, if you will, the throbbing pulses of Turkey. And I must also say that these elections have taken place under circumstances of a deep recession, which led um, to about an unemployment rate of um, 14% and rising, youth unemployment probably around 25-26%, an inflation rate of about 20%. So these were not the ideal circumstances for the ruling party to take us to local elections, and I think that played an important role. But another part was, uh, again the resistance on the part of close to 50% of the population to the policies pursued uh, with increasing vehemence by the ruling party. So the divisions in Turkey sound in some ways not unlike the United States, a kind of a coastal elite in an alliance with ethnic minorities against uh, a kind of a nativist 50% of the population. Is that fair? Yeah, but I think both of those groups uh, contain within themselves elements of the other. And AKP, when it first came to power, was more representative of the dynamism of the coastal cities, certainly of Istanbul, than it is today. And of course, you know, when you've been in power for 17 years, invariably corruption sits in. Then as Turkish economy doesn't function as well, there is less to distribute. So corruption becomes much more uh, self-serving or serving private interests rather than public interests and all that. So all of those things are, are working in Turkey. And I think we've been one of the most important examples of how a democratic system could deteriorate. But we have, I think, with the local elections, I think the country has also shown that it's uh, the more vibrant elements within its society are really, really fighting the good fight. And that is something that I think Turkey's allies in the West have not really paid much attention to for quite a long time. What's the likelihood, if they continue to lose elections, of the AKP calling for a national emergency and closing the whole system down? I mean, those are all speculative things that have been talked about, but that, you know, it didn't happen. It could have happened before the... Um, before the. I mean, they could have done it with the Gulenist coup. I mean, we did have a coup attempt in 2006, which, of course, uh, facilitated the establishment of emergency rule and many measures had been taken through the legitimating framework of emergency rule. Fighting the Gulenists, there were also other elements within society that the rulers did not particularly like, who have also been expelled from academia, expelled from their jobs, who cannot find employment in newspapers. The media is almost totally dominated by the ones in power. The uh, 
open secret is that the country was offered a choice between moving to this new presidential system or keeping the parliamentary system. We did have a referendum. There were lots of questionable things about the referendum, including its result. The promise on the part of those who supported the new system was that with the presidential systems, we would be able to take care of all our problems immediately and with greater competence. That didn't happen. The system is not functioning. There is great disillusion with that as well. So again, with the municipal elections, somehow life was injected not only to the opposition, and they will have much many more resources now that they will control, but also to the fact that, yes, indeed, the ballot box still works. The response of the ruling party to the loss of major cities, particularly Istanbul, was undermining their own claim that they deserve to rule the country because they came out of the ballot box. And this is the first time, with the tiniest of difference, by the way, I think the uh, AKP-MHP alliance lost uh, Istanbul by 0.03%. I mean, out of uh, 8.7 million votes, the difference was about 14,000 between their candidate and the candidate that who won, uh, Mr. Ekrem Imamoglu, which incidentally also finally presented after 17 years to the country a political figure that appeared to have the potential to challenge Mr. Erdogan as somebody that can actually unite disparate groups within the country as a political leader. Those were really all positive results of the municipal elections. We'll see how it will continue. You're a comparative political scientist. Is there a country in the world that sort of equivalent to what's happening in Turkey? Might it be Brazil? Brazil is one. Uh, India? I mean, there too, the founding uh, party Congress fights against a very nativist uh, BJP. Right. And Mr. Modi's campaign has even more nativist elements today than it did before, if that's possible. And I'm probably Duterte in the Philippines before that, in Thailand, the Taksin Shinawatra. So what's going on, Sali? Uh, we have this cult of sort of neo-authoritarian charismatic leaders, Erdogan, Bolsonaro... Modi in India. What do you make of that? Can you have the sort of semi-authoritarian cult leader work within democracy? Well, it will be a limited democracy because you still have the ballot box. As I said, I think at the beginning, nobody among those authoritarian far-right parties actually denounced the ballot box. In fact, they need the legitimacy of the ballot box. But then it becomes what in the literature nowadays is being called competitive authoritarianism. Or creeping authoritarianism. Isn't what your friend Moises Naim called creeping authoritarianism? I mean, obviously, Venezuela was also an earlier example. Yes, creeping authoritarianism. And if you maintain the ballot box option, it becomes competitive authoritarianism. You keep on having elections, but the elections don't change the results. Okay, that's why I think what we had in Turkey was pretty important. And, and of course, what happens in the United States sets an extraordinarily bad example for the rest of the world. <laughs> in, in, this, in the sense that, remember, that uh, Mr. Trump, before he was elected, said, that if he lost, he would not necessarily recognize the legitimacy of the elections. That's a very dangerous path to follow, if you will. But that is the kind of leaderships we have. 
in many democratic countries these days, and even in Europe, uh, all those Eurosceptic or anti-European ultranationalist parties are now beginning to say they dropped their anti-Europeanism and they're going to try to change the European Union from within, and they may have a good chance of uh, getting a much larger number of seats uh, in the European Parliament. I mean, we've seen Brexit. I mean, lies did work. But the societies are also beginning to respond. Those who were too complacent are now beginning to fight for their beliefs and their values and whatever. We're going to go through a pretty rough patch, uh, but I think at the end of the day, we may be able to get through this. One thing you haven't mentioned is the emergence of another kind of more efficient, you might call it authoritarianism or maybe even near totalitarian model in China built around data, the, the Chinese social credit system. Is this something that some Turkish supporters of authoritarianism are looking at sympathetically and saying, well, why don't we just adopt the Chinese model? So far, we only discussed the Chinese model in terms of its economic success. Isn't that the point, that it works, therefore you can legit... I mean, I'm not saying it's right, but... Yeah, I don't think Turkey is alone, uh, either admiring or envying the Chinese model. But of course, here's... And that's precisely what I was going to get to. The new technologies enable China, or Xi Jinping, to actually put away 20 years of understanding in China that you had limited terms to serve. And now he's going to be there like a second Mao in power for life as he expects, whether or not that will materialize, we will see. The new technologies and the fact that capitalism, which undergirds this democratic system, have become dysfunctional for a majority of the situation. Those two aspects, the technologies that enable rulers to control societies, to misinform them, and actually uh, reinforce authoritarian tendencies by actually taking away from the citizenry the consciousness of citizenship, on the one hand, and second, the fact that capital is not interested in a redistributive organization of the economy. Those work for in favor of authoritarianism. So our two challenges are, how do we actually regulate technology companies that have become fiefdoms or kingdoms of their own, number one, and number two, how are we going to create a capitalism that is going to pay more attention as it did before after the Second World War to the redistributive aspects of wealth generation? Unless we take care of these two problems, I think we will end up having a mixture of Orwellian and Huxleyan dystopias. I mean, 1984 combined with Brave New World. So briefly, Solly, let's end on those two notes. What is your recipe for regulating big tech? How do we begin this? Do we have models or are we starting from the beginning here? I think the European Union is trying to do something about it. In the United States, to the extent that I'm following it, the debate has begun. But the threshold of the population for rebelling against the impact of technological companies on their lives has been disappointing, to say the least. I mean, you would expect that after Cambridge Analytica scandal and the fact that your private data is up for grabs and you're being actually manipulated and all that, there would be an uproar. There hasn't been. I don't know whether there will ever be a point when the population will say enough is enough, you know, we don't want this. Maybe with the new generation that was actually born with these technologies, a reaction will grow. So, so far, 
it can only be governments that are going to be regulating. Some are talking about breaking these companies like AT&T was broken in, I think, late 1970s, early 1980s. The debate has begun whether or not the political system will respond to this debate in the way that I would like to see it respond. Actually, that remains to be seen. And then the second issue you brought up is an, an even bigger challenge, the reform of capitalism. It's, I know it's, it's always been a, yeah. a, a subject which you've given a lot of thought to. Very briefly, where do we begin here? Increasingly, without political mobilization, I don't think we can get anywhere. If you speak specifically about the American system, you have to be able to stop the corroding effect of big money because uh, it really both delegitimizes the legislature and also it makes it open to the impact of big corporations and whoever are the strongest lobbyists. And the amount of money spent on lobbying is just immense. And the United States, for better or worse, whether we like it or not, does set an example and does set the trend. It is slightly optimistic that in certain American states, really efforts are being made to reconfigure the politics, at least at the state level. If we, this can be moved to the federal level, we'll have some hope, I think. And again, in Europe, we'll have to find some juice, if you will, in it to actually come up with ideas and the political will to actually implement those. I'm not terribly optimistic, but you've got to keep on hoping that political mobilization will ultimately deliver what I personally think would be a better way to go about how we organize our politics and economics. Last question, Solly. Again, I'm going to ask you a big, big, juicy question. You, know, you and I lived through the end of history period where everyone thought that the world was becoming democratic and that there was no longer a debate. What is or what will be the debate in the 21st century? The great debate in the 20th century is between a Soviet form of communism or socialism and Western liberal market democracy. What's the debate in the 21st century? Particularly a debate that will sort of be played out in developing countries like Turkey? I think globally, the big question is going to be equality. This is how you're going to be organizing opposition. Now, that opposition may demand the safety of authoritarian rulers that will then deliver the goods. I think that's an illusion. Or that demand may actually imply, again, political mobilization and reorganizing the way we structure our economy and how the political system responds to the demands of a public, many elements of which, by the way, may be redundant or dysfunctional in a new economy that can be dominated by robots and stuff. So we really have to rethink the relation between the economy and society. In global terms, in terms of power relations, I think we will probably have a dual system. On the one hand, we'll have a rising China that will increasingly, obviously, put its weight on the global scene. And whether or not there will be a balancer in the West for that will depend on how the United States is going to shape its relations with Europe. If you leave it to Trump, obviously, he doesn't want Europe. And America by itself may not be able to be that counterweight. And Europe will have to be far more resourceful, if you will, if it wants to remain relevant. And that leaves a big chunk of the world's territory dominated by Russia. It may very well be that geopolitically, which way the world is going to go, how the, its new balances are going to be set, will be determined by the choices that Russia will make. And that, of course, is a challenge for the Western world, which has now 
rather bad relations with Russia. Russia is a lot closer to China today than it is to the Europeans and to the Americans. Can we get out of that trap is, in my judgment, one of the most important geopolitical questions for the future. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors. But please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. There you have it. Solly Ozel laid out the twin challenges facing all democracies in the early 21st century. Firstly, we have to figure out how to regulate big tech. Secondly, we need to reform capitalism to reduce the chasm between rich and poor. So the challenge is fixing Wall Street and fixing Silicon Valley. Simple. Like so many other people who have appeared on this show, Ozil stresses the need to regulate Silicon Valley to protect us from both surveillance and fake news. It's amazing, really. From Pirate Bay co-founder Peter Sunde to Financial Times columnists Rana Furuhar and Martin Wolf, to venture capitalist John Borthwick, to best-selling author Shoshana Zuboff, the message is always the same. It's the one thing that unites American capitalists, Turkish critics of neoliberalism, Nordic libertarians and British conservatives. Regulate, regulate, regulate. Big tech better be listening. The storm is getting closer and closer to Silicon Valley. Ozil's second point is equally important. As he notes, the unwritten post-Second World War social contract that the economy should work for everybody has been shattered. That's the reason for the explosion of angry populism. That's why there is so much cultural resentment now between global elites and the middle classes, between the city and countryside, between cosmopolitans and nativists. Indeed, fueled by the algorithmic mirror of social media, this gulf has become so wide, Ozil warns, that it has degenerated into an us-and-them shouting match in which neither side accepts the credibility or indeed even the legitimacy of the other. But Ozil, 
who divides his time between Turkey, Western Europe, and the United States, does see significant differences between the developed and developing world. In the United States and Western Europe, he says, authoritarian populism is fueled by a middle class in decline. Whereas in Brazil, India, the Philippines, and Turkey, he says, it's fueled by a rising middle class. A populism mostly triggered by fear of outsiders and immigrants, then, can succeed in any financial climate. Culture, Ozil suggests, competes with economics in potentially undermining democracy. But Sali Ozil also has some encouraging news for Democrats. Democracy still matters, even in what he dubs the competitive authoritarian regimes in Turkey, Brazil, and India. Leaders like Erdogan in Turkey or Modi in India need the legitimacy of elections to maintain their power, he insists. And that's why the recent municipal elections in Turkey, in which power changed hands in Istanbul and other major Turkish cities, are such a big deal. The ballot box still works, Ozil triumphantly says about these elections. They might even suggest that Erdogan's authoritarianism is now in decline in Turkey. Finally, it's worth reiterating Ozil's global perspective of democracy's fate in the 21st century. China's digital totalitarianism, he warns, offers a chillingly efficient model for authoritarian leaders in developing countries like Turkey. Putin's Russia, he reminds us, with its growing international influence, offers an equally cynical model of politics that replaces democracy with kleptocracy. And that's why, Ozil argues, the fate of American democracy matters so much. The outside world, particularly developing countries like Turkey, look to America as a model of a working democracy. America better fix Wall Street and fix Silicon Valley. That's Soliozel's challenge to America. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode, and from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.